0: We're glad you're here this morning. And as we move forward in our series in Titus, please go ahead and turn there. Again, your pastor is so remedial, he will only preach one verse this week. Unbelievable. Oh, high school and junior high, yes. Wow. Where did everybody go? (laughs) Hi, guys. Your section wins this week. Fantastic. You guys are the winners. We're, we're glad that, uh, so you guys in this section, let's go, let's, let's bring some, some energy and emphasis this week. Love you guys, and love you guys as well, didn't want to leave you out. You guys in the back row, I don't understand you. I don't know why you're always there. Um, I grew up in a church where that's where the troublemakers were, but that's not this church. I promise you, that's not this church. Uh, I'm excited this morning as we move forward. Uh, Because this is such a self-incriminating message. (laughs) Uh, It's all about leadership. And as we look at this beautiful picture, let me remind you real quickly, we're in Titus. Titus is one of the minions of Paul. No, he's not a minion. He's part of Paul's ministry team. And Paul had, had with Titus, and maybe some others, we don't know for sure, had set up and established some churches on the island of Crete. We've spent a lot of time talking specifically about the fact that Crete wasn't the best place in the world to maybe raise a family. It wasn't the most uh, moral place. As a matter of fact, through antiquity, through even Greek histories, uh, Crete had a name for itself. It was, it was uh, a den of iniquity, however you want to place that, put that. Uh, think about that area in your geographical atlas that you think, that is one town I will drive way out of the way not to go into. That may be Barstow, Mojave, um, you know, some of the better municipal areas of our state. Um, but Creek just, it was, it was a bad place. And with that emphasis, with that understanding we're going to look at this book of titus and think in context to our own world so i want you to i want you to start there this morning you're gonna get immersed in those sermon notes and filling out the details and there's a lot of specifics this morning you gotta come to it from the overarching understanding that they had set up some churches and yet those churches were not yet complete remember last week i told you about a tent and i set up this tent but i never put the fly on it and because of that Everything inside the tent was affected because of the morning dew. Everything was wet. Everything was soggy. And yet I thought I had my established protection, didn't I? Because I set my tent up. That's what had happened here, is that Paul had established churches, and yet they're living in an incredibly carnal place. And he's saying, You've got to, Titus, you've got to get in there and you've got to help these people get everything complete. So not only do they survive, but they thrive. In a very carnal place. Does that sound like what our churches need today? Absolutely. This is what we need as a church today. So let me pray over the message this morning as we begin to uh, get in here and root around verse 6 and, uh, and, and examine how does that fit with this idea of the church being complete and prepared in every way. Father, this morning, speak to us. There are many... Um, principles. There are many encouragements and edifications for us to grasp out of your scripture this morning. Your Holy Spirit knows what each person needs to glean, needs to understand. And so I'm going to ask, Lord, uh, that your spirit speaks to the individuals as I convey the message. Move beyond what I say and make us better for it and help us to understand and apply the richness of your word. Amen. Well, this morning as we move forward, you know, we live in a society that when it comes to leadership, and so we're talking about total quality leadership part two, there will be three parts to this. We live in a society that leadership can be somewhat equated to the anecdote of the two guys that were in the woods and a bear starts chasing them. You might have heard of this one, right? Folks, the the true leader isn't worried so much about uh, will he be eaten by the bear the true leader is the one who says, I just need to be faster than the other guy. Right? That, that, that's what leadership is equated to. I'm just going to keep my neck above the next guy. I'm not worried about this danger. I'm not worried about this out of the other. And as we think and as we relate, folks, this goes to the leadership of countries. It goes to the leadership of churches. It goes to leadership within our own communities. Uh, how many of you remember the name Shrimp Boy being in the news. Anybody remember the name Shrimp Boy? Now, I can remember Shrimp Boy because the media loves saying that so many times. I cannot remember the scumbag. That's right. That is a holy theological term. The scumbag uh, assemblyman or state senator that was indicted with this uh, local gangster named Shrimp Boy. If you're going to be a gangster, why would your name be Shrimp Boy? you're not going to get very far with something like that. But anyway, we had a state assemblyman who was illegally purchasing guns and selling them on the black market. Let me tell you where our society is. We should be called cretins or Cretans. I don't care however you say it. We just got a little step closer to that wonderful island that we're looking at here. Because when they had the recent election, he got 1,300 votes. He never backed out of the election and people thought, well, why would you, he got 1,300 people voted for this guy. Folks, we wonder why the state of California is in a mess. It's because we settle for bad leadership. And when we do, it affects our entire environment. This message doesn't just speak to leadership in the church. This speaks to the young teenage girl, and hopefully they'll hear it coming up. If they don't, you would teenage girls reiterate this. When you make that choice of what guy you're going to hook up with, as they say, you better think through the quality of that leadership because you'll pay for it in the end. There are a lot of single moms out there that As they look at this message, when I get to point three, there's going to be some aching hearts. There are a lot of young men out there that need to hear this message because they need to become who they're supposed to be instead of having double muscles in their thumbs for video games and a little too extra, you know, padding from laying on the sofa too long And acquiescing to whomever. And not rising to be who they need to be. We're going to dive into the area of leaders this morning. And it applies to all of us. So please, don't tune out because you may say in your mind, well, I'm not a leader. Folks, you are a leader. And and how you vote for your leaders and how you choose your leaders and who you put yourself subject to is what you need to learn from this this morning because everything is at stake when it comes to this issue. This morning, let's start with the following. Here's the verse. Verse six of Titus one. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. Now that's kind of a fragmented sentence. You got to go back to five and it explains that you know, Titus, I want you to make straight these churches, and I want you to appoint elders within these churches. And there's a parenthetical thought here. There's a little bit of a gap. There's some grammar in there. And Paul starts to qualify who those elders are. And so this is almost the introduction of these qualifications. You're going to see him hit this again in verse 7 and say something specific about. And so, elders should be, or leaders should be, but we're going to deal with this verse 6 this morning. So let's start with the first idea. Number one, an elder is to be above reproach. Let me give you a real quick breakdown here first of elder. This is not in your notes. This is for you to memorize. I'll test you later. All right. Elder is this idea. There's, there's three three terms that we don't have. We just have one term, but in the Greek, there's three terms that fit with that person who is a spiritual leader within the church. One is episkopos, and that's what is translated here when you see this word elder or overseer, all right? Episkopos, and that is the position uh, of of a mature leader who is recognized, not given a position of authority, but one of recognized authority because of their wisdom. They are sought after. They are an overseer, and they do so well. Another word is poimen Poyman is... The word pastor it is the idea of being a shepherd. Another word is presbyter. And, and, so those are the three, three concepts that we're dealing with here. So this morning as we talk about elder, we're speaking to that, that upper echelon of leadership that's supposed to exist within a church... And Paul starts to describe himself, Not he, by the way, he never describes himself as an elder. He had been an elder in, in service and in function earlier on in his ministry, we believe, in Antioch. But he moved out from that function because it wasn't a local church function. Paul moved out to be a missionary, so he was an apostle. And he describes himself as such at the beginning of this letter, right? A servant, an apostle, and what? And a preacher. All right, but he's not functioning as an elder within a local church because he's kind of overseeing many churches and establishing those churches. So when we look at this idea of above reproach, this is kind of hard. Basically what's being stated is that you've got to be perfect to be an elder. Anybody feel qualified out there? Yeah. Wow. I don't know that we're going to get any nominations, Brad. Well, let's break this down because if, if we're talking about being above reproach, then we've got a challenge of uh, defining that. Otherwise, we would never have leaders, spiritual leaders in our church. So, number one, a life whose conduct doesn't allow an accusation. Did you notice in the Scripture, as it's stated, that the person needs to be what? Above reproach. So reproach is this idea, this concept that you can't make an accusation towards the person. You cannot approach the person and make an accusation. Not only that, you have to, as an elder, be above that. Now I want you to remember this, because we're going to come back to it. How many of you feel like you could never be accused of anything? Yeah, me either. So what are we talking about? But we know that this is what Paul is emphasizing. So let's keep digging so we can get a better idea and better understanding of, you know, what are these qualifications of total quality uh, leadership that Paul's talking about? Secondly, this is a guideline defined by the various qualities that are going to follow. So what we're going to dive into... What Paul is going to continue to give us, and what he also gives in First uh, Timothy chapter three, these are the definitions whereby we can measure that above reproach. So, in other words, if you're going to make it onto uh, the 49ers um, football squad, you need to uh, only have two or three, or maybe four uh, DUIs, um, and. Uh, You know, a potential abuse situation. Um, You can have all that and still play. That wouldn't be above reproach. When we talk about guidelines, we're talking about a scenario or situation where it's measurable. That when we take the idea and the understanding of being above reproach, that we have to measure accusation of what? Looking towards what? Because my friends, how many of us have had accusations against somebody and there were unfounded accusations? Christ had accusations against him all the time, did he not? Paul had accusations against him all the time. So is Paul eliminated? No. And so what, what is Paul trying to emphasize? You know, I did a little study on this that was, that was challenging. And, and it, was, it was fun as well. And, and, and here's a little nugget. For those who love to go deeper... I'm going to challenge you right now. We read this on a cursory level, and it seems pretty simple and straightforward, right? This person needs to be without accusation. Their life needs to be free from accusation. And so if you're a living, breathing, thinking human being, you're pretty much going to get to the same point I did, hopefully, that, well, then there's not many that are qualified. As a matter of fact, there probably would be none that are qualified. So what is it, that begs the next question, right? What is it that he's talking about? How do we qualify that? Or how do we quantify that? You've got to go through a pattern of saying what it is and what it isn't, what it is and what it isn't. And that's why these guidelines are important. Is Paul's going to give us some measurable ideas. Because it forced me to go back and start looking in, in the history of God's relationship with establishing authority. You remember King Saul out of the Old Testament, correct? And you remember King David out of the Old Testament, correct? You're going to hear in a moment one of those qualifiers is that you are to be a one-woman man. And, and I don't want to give away the prize yet, but David was not a one-woman man, was he? As a matter of fact, how many of you would hire David to be an elder of your church or a pastor of your church? I think under these qualifications or under what we deem in, in our search committees or or uh, our uh, nominating committee as it's ramping up and getting ready to go, we would fire David immediately. Because he had murdered somebody, and he had committed adultery. Now the fascinating thing is, if you look in, in the Scripture, when you look in the narrative, and you go past the sin with Bathsheba, and the murder of Uriah, and you move into Nathan's confrontation of David, and you move past that, and you see the consequence of what happens to David, that his child dies. And that was God's verbal consequence. This is what God said would happen because of your disobedience, David. And not only that, God says to David, as you have done to Bathsheba and laid shame upon the nation of Israel and upon her, your entire house will be laid to shame. And it was. But here's a little interesting nugget that doesn't fit with the above reproach did God remove David from his position he did not was David's life complicated and was it an embarrassment and was it public for all to see did God follow through with the consequences as a result absolutely now back up to Saul Relatively, if we were going to hire a pastor, we would look at Saul and we would look at David and we say, well, let's see, adulterer and murderer and a little too eager to perform a religious ceremony. We would have hired Saul over David. And yet what God does, when Saul has this battle and he doesn't follow through with leadership, he doesn't make sure that God's command is followed to the deepest level... Samuel arrives and Samuel says to Saul, because you have done this thing and you have not obeyed God, you will no longer be what? You will no longer be king. Now, that process took a while, right? If you know your OT history. But bottom line, Saul was taken from his position. And I believe the reason it took so long is because the Lord really saw that to make an emphasis on this king who ruled poorly, who didn't demonstrate quality leadership. David was not removed from his position. What do you do? do? Well, you might say, well, pastor, that's Old Testament. Well, let's fast forward to New Testament, shall we? we? How many of you would hire the person who denied Christ three times publicly and was known for that to be your number one go-to guy? How many would hire a violent man who decided to pick up a sword and start lopping off ears to be the head of the church? And he was known for that. How many of you would hire an impulsive person who got himself into a lot of trouble because of his impulsiveness? So what does this mean? To be above reproach. What does this mean? Well, let's tear it apart. Hopefully, I've got you interested. Are you interested? Let's keep breaking it down. Credible versus infallible. Turn to 1 Timothy 5.19. This is one of the ways that we can know uh, a little bit of context of of what Paul is doing here. And a lot of it, in my opinion, is caught up in the issue of literary style. And and contextually about where Titus is and what's happening in the region that that he's in. So verse 19 of chapter 5 says the following do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses as for those who persist in sin rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear this morning we talk about the issue of credible versus infallible when the lord is saying or paul is saying uh, because of the lord's instruction that a leader needs to be above reproach he's not saying he needs to be infallible. We know that because we knew Paul was not infallible. We knew that Peter was not infallible. So what is he talking about? He is talking about the issue of credibility inside the church and outside the church. And we'll dive into this a little bit later on when we start moving through it, uh, whether it's in Titus or whether it's in, again, uh, 1 Timothy. That we have to have credibility with people. Brothers and sisters, for us to learn from leaders is to see the entire gospel reflected in their lives a main component of the entire gospel is redemption is it not and so if we say that a leader has to be infallible we will have no leaders by default you get that we'll have no leaders by default so what does this mean Well, I spent a little bit of time here kind of breaking this down to kind of wet your appetite so you would be more interested as we get into each breakdown. And, And so Paul's going to get into some specifics, but I'm going to give you a little hint here. Are you ready? That he's using a little bit of hyperbole. He's exaggerating a little bit. He is setting the standard because he doesn't want to lower the standard. You see, the problem is where Titus is, is such a corrupt area that he's got to say, Hey, Titus, you're going to be tempted to bring on people that you think, well, we can mold them into this. We can can grab this and this is what we've got to work with and we can make, don't settle for that, Titus. Look for those that are above reproach. Look for those that are as close to that as possible. And so we have to be careful because if we're going to get loose with this terminology, we can't get too loose, right? We have to know exactly what... What is God's expectation on leaders and spiritual leaders? So he starts out with the following. An elder must be the husband of one wife. And this has been interpreted in a variety of different ways throughout the years. Um, how many of you have been taught that an elder... This is going to be really interesting. Um, how many of you have been taught that an elder needs to never have a divorce in their life? Anybody? I I grew up in a church like that. Okay. How many of you have been taught that if there's any hint of adultery within the household, that that person is eliminated from being an elder? I grew up in that church. So let's give some definition to this. He says this in the Scripture. The husband of one wife. Well, thank you, Paul. And most of us probably grab onto an interpretation of that or what Paul's saying with that based off of teachings that we've received. And so here you're going to get another one of those teachings. All right? So just measure this against all those other teachings and see which one you like. Throw it out there and pick the one you No. Let's find the one that, that has the best meaning according to what God's standard is. Because this is important. This is vastly important. There are pastors today that refuse to be in the ministry because their wife has left them. Should they be out of ministry? Because of their wife's sin. There are pastors who are in the ministry who have left their wives and have done so with no recourse whatsoever and they're still in the ministry. Should they be in the ministry? These are questions we need to answer. So number one, let's start with what it isn't. Well, what we do know is it can't be bachelors. Right? Because Paul was an elder at a particular time, and he was a bachelor. So when he says a what? A husband of one wife, does that mean that every elder has to be in a marriage relationship? Thank you. Well done. Well done. So you see how if you take this literally by the way that you're reading out out of your scriptures, out of the scriptures that we have, there could be this interpretation that, well, all elders need to be married. That's not what Paul's saying. Otherwise, he, he is in offense of his very instruction. Something else that cannot be a, a fact is widowers. All right. So a, a widower isn't included in this because they're not married. Alright, so, what it isn't? Polygamy. It's not polygamy, and and one of the reasons that... Now, there are some that think that maybe he is talking about polygamy. But let me give you a breakdown as to why most scholars, most biblical scholars, don't believe that. Is that when Paul is talking about something, he is specific. So if he's going to talk about divorce, you would turn to 1 Corinthians 7. Where he, he goes on and on and on about divorce and about the marital relationship. Paul's style was such that if he wanted to get something across, he used specific words. If he spoke to a general concept, he used general concept. So if he was going to say something about polygamy, if it was an issue within the church, he would have spoken to it multiple times somewhere in his epistles. I don't know about your Bible, but my Bible says nothing about polygamy anywhere in the New Testament church. So that's why scholars don't believe when he says uh, a, a one-woman man or, or a husband of one wife, it's probably not talking about polygamy. And, and some people want to bring culture into that and say, well, that was rampant within the Roman culture. We don't have any historical evidence that that was rampant or even a, a normative within the Christian church early on. So it's not polygamy that he's talking about. What else? Well, we know that Paul gave certain allowances for divorce. So could it be in a general sense that Paul is saying if you have been divorced, there's no way you can serve as that episkopos, that spiritual leader. I'm going to give you two areas. Number one, Jesus Christ himself said that you are no longer bound in this relationship if there is what? Not just adultery, sexual immorality is what is stated as well. Alright, and, and we don't have time to get into all that, but what you need to glean from that is that while, while Christ's desire is for redemption, this picture out of even the book of Hosea, just because there is adultery, just because there is sexual immorality, does not mean that you should just end the marriage, but there is an allowance to do so even from the very words of Christ. Not because you have been sexually immoral, But if that egregious thing has happened to you by the unfaithful partner, is that clear? That we know that Christ has done that. Paul reiterates that as well in uh, 1 Corinthians. And so abandonment is a second issue. And you'll see it in 1 Corinthians 7.15. And he uses his phraseology... In the same way that it does in the church to, Ro- to Rome. Where he talks about a person whose who's, uh, wife or husband has died. That they are no longer bound in marriage to that person. They are free to then remarry. He uses this same term when there is a believing person. Who is abandoned by an unbelieving person. This is something that was common early on in the church. It's even common today. You see an individual would come to Christ. And their partner in their marriage wasn't there yet. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, I would prefer that you stay together because God's grace is still there. But he says at the end of 7, and just following verse 15, 16-17, he says, but if that person leaves you, don't try to go after them because you can't save them. So Paul gives specific instructions to an individual that if the unbelieving partner leaves them, abandons them, they are no longer bound in that marriage. So there's two allowances here that we see. So my question to you is there are certain allowances for divorce. So I was always taught if someone's divorced, they are no longer qualified to be a pastor. They are no longer qualified to be an elder. I'm not sure that that's exactly what Paul's talking about. Because we don't live under condemnation. We don't live under a world by Christ that says, I'm going to hold this against you and hold this against you and hold this against you. Really the issue is credibility versus infallibility. Credibility versus infallibility. So we've talked about what it isn't. Let's talk about what it is to be a husband of one wife. This really is, is literally translated, what? A one-woman man. A one-woman man. That this person needs to be a one-woman man. They are not giving their attention over to other women. That's the, that is the primary focus of what Paul is trying to say. Is that It is not okay for a man to be a carouser with other women. You are to set the example of loyalty like Christ set to the church uh... ephesians five speaks to this that we are to be devoted to that woman that we are married to that we are betrothed to that we are one with we don't share those emotions we don't share physically we don't share those things that are only appropriate for our wives keep those within the marriage relationship folks uh, a, a very simple breakdown of this is in our society In our cretin society, we are rampant with infidelity. We are rampant with sexual immorality. And your spiritual leaders need to be those that protect themselves against such. One of the best compliments I've ever, ever, ever received. It's one of the last years that I did youth ministry out at this camp that we go to that I just spoke at. Uh one of my students, one of my former students who is not walking with the Lord at this point uh, said something very fascinating and incredibly blessing to me. Uh, I build a lot of barriers into my life in this area. Every piece of electronics I have has reporting on it. Everywhere I go on the internet goes that report goes to a friend, and if there's anything that's even close to questionable, it's flagged, and my accountability partner who I meet with once a week has permission to tell my elders if anything shows up. Why do I do that? Because I take this seriously. Because there are challenges emotionally within marriages. There are difficulties. And let me encourage you men, talk with your wives. Open up the channels of communication. Share with one another what the struggles are and what the difficulties are. That's leadership. To be silent is not to lead. This is one of the reasons that Paul lists this as an area. You want to lead the church, you've got to be able to lead in your own life and in your own relationships. That means you have to be that shepherd, that poyman, which is the one who protects. And in Ephesians 5, you see that descriptor that we as men are to protect. We are to present our wives as pure and glorious. That requires protection. I walked up to the cabin late at night because I was speaking. I was in a different place with my family and I wanted to know what on earth was going on in that cabin, right? Yeah, I still, still had the youth pastor hat on. And I walked up and there was a huge discussion going on in that cabin. And one student was struggling with their faith and they were questioning everything. So they kept throwing out all these reasons that they didn't believe or they were starting to have major doubts. And they threw out the thing about the hypocrisy of leaders in the church. And this student of mine spoke up in a visceral voice and said, I have never once, and he said, trust me, I've been watching. I have never once seen Jeremy Cook even look at a woman the way he should not look at a woman. I thought, wow, I appreciate that, Josh. That's where I need to be. That's where our spiritual leaders need to be. We need to be a man who is a one-woman man. Why? Because we need to be perfect? No, because we need to have credibility. And we need not to be like the cretins. There are to be men who have quality when viewed in the area of purity. Are your leaders such? Because this is a spiritual expectation of Christ. And so if men are practicing immorality or practicing dancing with immorality or practicing coming up to the edge of immorality and yet wanting to claim the spiritual high ground, they have a lack of what? They have a lack of credibility. They have a lack of credibility. An elder is to have children in good standing. This is, this is a challenge Right here, this is one that that um, is a little scary, and, and what do you do with this one? This is the one that a lot of people who like to attack church leadership they go after this one, um, and so we need to clarify what what Paul is stating and, and what he 's not stating um, here. Um, respectful and under control is is the definition i 'm going to give you. if you look at the parallel passage in first Timothy three. Four through five uh, you'll see that that's how paul lists it here in titus though he says what uh, let me go to it you can look at it in your own scriptures he says something a little bit different and this is where we get again a little bit challenged when you break down what this word actually means he says this and his children are believers his children are believers Well, what do you do with an elder whose children have walked away from the faith? You fire him. That's what you. No, I don't know. (laughs) Let's look. Let's let's examine this. Again, go back to David. His children were a mess, but did God remove him from his position? No. Uh, Just on the way in today, uh, it was no coincidence that I was going to reference Samuel. Samuel's. I'm sorry, Eli. Eli's sons were a mess. Eli's sons were struck dead because they were so carnal. Yet God did not remove Eli. Now, it affected his credibility. But God did not remove Eli. So what do you do with all that? I wish I could give you a New Testament reference. Well, I, we don't have any. We don't have any about the apostles. We don't have any about any elders or leaders of churches and how they handled their children. I will tell you it was a very different time. The way some children act today would not happen Then, whether they were believers or non-believers. Now, it might have happened on Crete. Alright? It might have happened on Crete. But there's some things to look at here between these two passages that are going to help define this. Number one, an elder is to have children in good standing. That's not what Titus said, is it? But that's what I said. Titus says that they're to be believers. Let me give you a breakdown of that. It's this Greek word pistis. And it is the most used word when it comes to faithfulness or faithful. Now, certain scholars will argue back and forth that this does or it doesn't mean to simply be under control or be devoted. It left me completely confused in my studies. I I, I wish I could pass something on to you that was extremely definitive, but I can't. So what I can look at is this, is that I know that the word faithful can be used as one who is under control and devoted. I can then reference back to 1 Timothy uh, 3 where he says under self-control, that the children need to be controlled and respectful. So why would Paul give a different condition over here to Titus versus the one to Timothy? I don't think he really is. I just think he's using a different vernacular. And because of that, that, that word and its usage can be interpreted as one who has saving faith. That can be interpreted that way. It can also be interpreted as one who is faithful, and that is the more common usage. One who is more faithful, which would describe one who is, like Paul said in First Timothy, devoted and under control and respectful. So the requirement is that the children need to be under control. He gives some definition to this, and that's why I've arrived at at children in good standing. He doesn't just say believers. Now, the grammar does give a comma here, but I think it's a comma leading to more description, more in-depth description. He does so here, I think, in context to the culture there in Crete. And and one of the things that you need to understand here is is requirements ruling of a household relating to ruling a church. And he's very specific about it in 1 Timothy. He's not so specific about it here. Again, what's the difference? I think it has to do with specifically where Paul is trying to establish these churches and trying to give a point of emphasis to Titus. And so this idea that if you can't rule your own household... If you're not a good spiritual leader in your own household, how can you be a spiritual leader over the church? Part of the challenge that we have in this is simply the understanding that if you want to go in a direction of saying, well then, if you have a failure within your household that you cannot, you cannot shepherd God's people, let's go back to Christ. Remember, I keep trying to find biblical examples to give definition to this. Christ succeeded with all 12 disciples, did He not? He didn't. There was one who was listed as the son of destruction. And in John 17, he says, I've been faithful to carry all of them except the one. Now, we can also talk about how uh, that was prophetic, how Judas may have been doomed to to give in on that direction. But at the same time, the issue of leadership stands as the same. The other The other challenge that I have here is that And so I speak to that just simply to say, ultimately, where Judas failed was in his true faith, his true faith and true understanding of who Jesus is. Should a spiritual leader in the church be held accountable for the ultimate spiritual decisions of his children? I think scripture talks over and over and over and over and over about our personal responsibility before the Lord. I know that the Old Testament covenant has to do with the whole family and those blessings are passed on. But I do believe that I have not found yet a place where when the Lord holds us accountable and says, why should I let you into my kingdom? That you see the scripture that says, oh, because mom and dad kept me under control and because they led me to the Lord. Because they, I didn't say that right, because they made sure that I believed. Jesus is going to say, no, 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 no! it doesn't work that way. Jesus is going to say, it's what's in your heart. It's your decision. It's your free will decision. So the challenge I see in this is that if he's really speaking about your children have to be believers in Jesus Christ, and you have to make them believers in Jesus Christ, we don't see that listed anywhere else in Scripture. And so that's what helps me form this idea And then again, these last two parts. Dissipation. They cannot have dissipation. This is literally the idea of unsavedness. It's the idea of excessiveness or rioting is the most common uh, usage of this word. Dissipation can also be seen as being a drunkard or uh, reveling in orgies because that word is used in that context. But that's just one way it's been used in that context. Ultimately, it means rioting. It means a troublemaker. Have you seen those kids around church? Have you seen those kids in your neighborhood? There are those kids all over the place. Where's the problem? Almost always the problem is poor leadership. Almost always the problem is poor leadership. Insubordination is the second word that Paul uses to describe this issue. And that's just a rebellious spirit. That is a rebellious spirit. My, my friends, Paul is correct that if we cannot with our own children lead them into an attitude of respect, they may not fully get it. They may not own it personally. But if someone can't lead their own children into an attitude of respect at least and some level of control over a period of time, then that person is going to have a credibility issue with those around them. So as they seek to lead in those other areas, we may not articulate it to their face, but inside we're saying, I'm supposed to trust you with this information, and I'm supposed to respond to you when you don't even control your own kids. Let me just explain something else about this. I, Because of that issue of a free moral agent, because of personal accountability, I believe that there is a time where there's an interchange with that. And I'll use Paul's point. Everybody in our church is doing great, right? There isn't a rebellious person in our church. Not one. Whew, good thing, otherwise I'd have to resign. You see where I'm going with this? Paul's using a rationale to say, "Hey, if if you've got a rebellious child, how can you control the church?" Well, if the point is how can you control you won't be able to control or encourage or lead rebellious people in your own church because of one rebellious child, then in my own church, if I have a rebellious person in my own church, then I probably shouldn't be leading. So we have to be careful about this idea Because again, what did I I share early on? We have a life, we have a faith that's rooted in redemption, is it not? And even Christ lost one person out of twelve. This is a credibility issue, not an infallibility issue. So if my children start struggling, or one of my children starts struggling, the question is simply this, what do you do with that? Because the disciples... Let's just remove Judas. The disciples weren't exactly the best in the room. Right? Peter cuts off the high priest's servant's ear. If my child goes out and lops off someone's ear with a machete, I'm probably losing my job, right? So we have to be a little bit careful that we're not taking one instance of failure, one instance of sin... One instance of impulsiveness and accrediting that over the entire gamut of where that child is. Do you understand that? Just like I will never hold, nor will Christ ever hold, one failure of yours against you and define you that way. When he gives instruction here about dissipation or rebelliousness, folks, that means that that child is defined that way. There's no allowance for growth. There's no allowance for uh, change. There's no allowance for, because of their age, they're growing, they're fluctuating, they need guidance. I hope that's really clear for you. But I will also tell you that if my children, and all of my children are out of the room, I think, if my children lead in a pattern of rebelliousness over a long period of time, then I will no longer be in the pastorate. Because I believe this to be true. And I believe that there will be a credibility issue. Will I still be saved? I hope so. I really hope so. Of course I'll be saved. But the point is total quality leadership requires credibility. Not infallibility, but credibility. Let me leave you with these ideas. Your elders need to reflect Christ. That is paramount. There's a statement given by uh, Samuel Bringle that... I want to share with you real quickly. He says, let me be a spiritual leader whose influence is felt in heaven, earth, and hell. And then in another statement, he said this about spiritual leadership. The axe cannot boast of the trees it has cut down. It could do nothing but for the woodsman. He made it, he sharpened it, and he used it. The moment he throws it aside, it becomes only old iron. Oh, that I may never lose sight of this. That's total quality leadership. And that's the heart that works to see God work through. Not so that people are infallible. But so that there's a credibility to the leadership. Amen? Let me dismiss you in prayer this morning and pray that these words encourage you and, and help you in your own walk, and in your own life, about what spiritual leadership looks like and about your own leadership within your own households and what God's expectation is for his church. Let me pray. Father, it is to you that we give glory. It is to you that we depend on instruction and correction and encouragement so that we are formed into that axe that Brangle spoke of. One that is useful, one that is sharp, one that uh, your hand is upon and wields it as an effective tool. But Lord, that we may not be set aside. That we may not find ourselves unwanted by the woodsman because we're ineffective. Thank You, Father. Give us wisdom when it comes to this instruction. To Your glory. Amen.